The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, if you go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm so confident that we'll finish tonight that I even told Carolyn what to put in the bulletin for the next series starting next Wednesday. Now, there is time for me to change it, just in case, but um, yeah, so Lord willing, next, um, next Wednesday we'll start actually in the book of Revelation, which ought to be fun. All right, so last week we, we covered uh, the first 14 verses, and just by way of, of reminder as the apostle takes care of some, uh, in a sense, uh, housekeeping issues. He deals with the, uh, the offering that was going to be sent to the poor saints in Jerusalem in verses 1 to 4. Paul then discusses uh, his future ministry plans in 5 through 9, his desire to actually pass through Corinth once again. So he's writing from Ephesus um, go to uh, Corinth, winter there. And then in uh, 10 through 18, he gives some general instructions regarding certain people and then, and then the Christian life. And so in 10 and 11, he gives some instruction regarding Timothy and basically tells the Corinthians, who were a, a challenging church, uh, be nice to Timothy, all right? Um, uh, Timothy's a sweet guy, you guys be nice to him. Uh, and then uh, a word about Apollos, and um, uh, which is it was somewhat humorous, I think, actually, when you uh, very clearly the Corinthians had inquired to see if Apollos would come to preach for them. And Paul says, well, he's quite unwilling right now, but maybe later. And then he gets to the ethical instruction that we spent most of our time on last week. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Be strong and do everything in love. And that brings us to verse 15, and so I'll read that to the end of the chapter. Now, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, and that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand. Paul, if anyone does not love the Lord, anathema, he is to be accursed, maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus, amen. And so as Paul uh, brings this letter to a close, he focuses in verses 15 and 16 on being in subjection to these leaders that he mentions. And um, what's interesting about 1 Corinthians as a whole is um, this is the only 
um, possible mention of church leadership in 1 Corinthians. Um, Think of Paul's other epistles. Um, He speaks uh, to church leaders, about church leaders, elders, deacons. Uh, Here, this is the only possible mention, which is is somewhat uh, interesting observation. But he makes reference to the household of Stephanus, and he refers to them as the first fruits of the gospel in, in Achaia. So the uh, Stephanus and his household would have been the first converts as Paul went into the region of Achaia. And the household of Stephanus seems to be actually devoted to the ministry of the word. Notice the way that Paul describes them. I urge you, brethren, and the New American Standard has this in parentheses, you know the household of Stephanus. Now, I don't think we're talking about babies here because we're talking about people that are responsible for leading the church. They were the first fruits of Achaia, and they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. And so here is uh, this, this household. Uh, Stephanus is the head of this household. He's the patron. And There are people in this household who are devoted to the ministry of the saints. And uh, I would say that my my best guess is that the ministry that Paul's talking about here is actually the ministry of the word. Now, what's going to be interesting is he's going to mention some other men um, in in just a, a, a verse or two. And uh, Gordon Fee actually suggests that the mention of Fortunatus and, um, and uh, Achaicus uh, suggests that those actually were slave names, common slave names, and that they were probably a part of the household of Stephanus, all right? And, um, and so Paul then says, you're to be subject to such leaders, notice very clearly, that you also be in subjection, verse 16, to such men and to everyone who helps in in the work and labors. And so uh, if you just flip over real quickly to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says something similar over there that's helpful here. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, But we request of you, brethren that you appreciate, now I don't know how the ESV does, does the word appreciate there. Um, Charlie? Okay, that's all right. Anybody else have the ESV open? What's that? Respect? Okay. So I'm going to talk about that word in just a second. So that you, that you appreciate or respect those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work, live in peace with one another. And uh, the word that Paul uses there in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, uh, the New American Standard says appreciate, is actually the word know, all right? that you would know those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. And then, verse 13, not only would you know them, but that you would also esteem them in love because of their work. And uh, it's, it seems to me that what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 16 is very similar to what he says there in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. 
Uh, in fact, the, the combination of words of laboring and toiling is, is, are often words that Paul uses in conjunction with the ministry or with the eldership. And so here's Paul, and he, he calls upon the Corinthians to actually submit to such men, which suggests, of course, that Stephanus and some of, of uh, those in his house were in leadership. Now, <clears throat> the Corinthian assembly was not an easy assembly to pastor, right? I mean, we've been traveling through this book now for, well, since 2015, I think. And the Corinthians were a tough bunch. And it seems that... Um, if, if, you had, if you had pockets of resistance to the Apostle Paul, do you not also think that there would have been pockets of even broader resistance to local church leadership, right? And so Paul is telling the Corinthians that you, you need to be in subjection to those who are laboring over your souls, right? And uh, even though the details here are, are not altogether clear, uh, Paul is, is, is admonishing them, encouraging them to have a good, healthy relationship with uh, their leadership. And, and by the way, it, it, it's, it's much easier to exercise leadership with people that you know and love and who know and love you, Right? It's, it's much easier. It, it, is, it is challenging when you don't know who your pastors are. This is, this is no exaggeration. Years ago, I was um, staying with a friend of Stephen Molly Nugent's during youth conference. He went to uh, a mega church in Southern California, and one of his closest friends was an, was an elder at this mega church, and he told me that that his friend, who served as an elder in this mega church, that the pastor didn't even know his first name. He's got like eighty elders or something like that, which I don't know how effective that that possibly could be. But could you imagine being in a church where? You didn't know the pastor, the pastor didn't know you, and, and the leadership didn't even know each other, right? And so what Paul calls us to is, is to know each other, to appreciate each other, and for there to be a sense of, um, of, of respect. I think the ESV actually captures a, a, a good sentiment there, that there should be respect. And of course, it's easier to respect somebody that you know loves you than somebody who is a distant figurehead, all right? Paul then goes on, and in verses 17 to 18, he, um, he talks about uh, the coming of Stephanus, and so that's the head of the household that he's mentioned, and Fortunatus. So, by the way, you know what his name, you know what his friends called him, right? They called him Lucky. All right, that's, that's actually 
fortunate is we get the, the word fortunate from this guy's name. So, so you had Stephanus or Stephen, and then you had Lucky. And uh, then uh, Achaicus, which actually is not uh, that sterling of a name because it just means the guy from Achaia, all right? And so uh, could you imagine actually just being known as the guy from Tonopah or the guy from Gardnerville, right? And so what does Paul do? He says, I rejoice. These three guys came to see me and they supplied what was lacking on, on your part. And so... Uh, in a sense, what Paul's saying is seeing those guys actually made up for me not being able to see all of you. Okay? That's the idea. What, what was lacking, of course, was, was uh, the Corinthians' presence. And so Paul says, those three guys came and, and they, they actually made up for your absence. And in all likelihood, these three men, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, probably delivered the letter from Corinth to Paul and then in turn brought Paul's letter back to Corinth. All right? So um, I mentioned earlier, and this is why it's important, both uh, Fortunatus and Achaicus were very, very common slave names or freedmen names. And by freedmen, I mean somebody who had actually purchased their freedom or somebody else had purchased it for them, but they were a former slave. And so it's very, very possible that they are among the household of Stephanus. And just think about this for a moment. The Church of Corinth sends an official delegation to deliver a letter to the Apostle Paul and to bring a letter back. And the men that that constitute that official delegation with very high probability are a master and two slaves. You have to understand that in the first century, the gospel does something in Roman society. The gospel brings a unity in Roman society that was absolutely impossible apart from the gospel. Because there were, there were fundamental divisions within society. You had the fundamental division between Jew and Gentile. You had the fundamental division between bond and free. Okay. There, there was no um, uh, you know, fraternity of brothers that was made up of both bond and free. The free were free and the bond were slaves. And that's all. They were two different systems or two different classes. And so Roman society was a caste system. And yet, it is the gospel that does what? Actually makes makes people brothers. By the way, the reason I think that this this is a very good possibility is because we have that exact case in the book of Philemon, right? You'll remember Onesimus was the escaped slave, and Paul actually admonishes Philemon to, to take him back um, but but more than a slave, take him back as your brother. 
right? And so here's the gospel that, that, that in a sense, heals the divisions among men. Ephesians 2, the, the, the Lord Jesus as the one who has made peace through his blood actually has created out of the two one new man so that Jew and Gentile are now one. Okay? I've said this before and, and, and we need to understand it socially and culturally. To say Jew and Gentile are one new man is, was even more radical than to say black and white make one new humanity in 1960s Mississippi. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel actually turns masters and slaves into brothers. Paul actually didn't need to go out and picket uh, uh, the, the, the evils of slavery what he needed to do was preach the gospel and get masters converted and get slaves converted. And then all of a sudden, something wonderful starts to happen when you have masters treating slaves like brothers. By the way, you could imagine the dynamic in the early church. So let's just pretend for a second that Arnie is a Norwegian slave. Okay? Sorry, but you're, I pick on Strachan, you're the next closest. So, here's Arnie, and he's a prisoner of war, okay? And the Romans went and beat the Norwegians and brought him back, and, and, and he went for a good price because he's so big and strong. And here he is, and the guy that buys him becomes a Christian. And let's say the guy that had bought Arnie actually was a wealthy merchant. Well, what does this wealthy merchant start doing? He starts sharing the gospel with his whole household, which would mean not only family, but those who were slaves. And then Arnie becomes a Christian. And Arnie's master, notice I didn't identify who your master would be. Amy Anna. (laughs) All of a sudden, Arnie's baptized and starts to display gifts and qualities. And his master becomes an elder in the church. And then Arnie becomes an elder in the church. This this is the power of the gospel. And what, what our nation needs more than anything else is we need the gospel. It's the gospel that transforms people's hearts. It's the gospel that actually... It's it's the gospel that transforms people from being all kinds of things to being somebody who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and loves others. And that's what we need. So we need more than anything else. And so here's this here's this band of men who go and they deliver the uh, the, the letter. They get the the letter. They bring it back. And notice how Paul describes them. Verse 18, for they've refreshed my spirit 
and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. And so when he says, they've refreshed my spirit, Paul says, these three guys came to me while I'm in Ephesus. So does Paul have a fruitful ministry going on in Ephesus? The answer is yes. But does Paul have an incredibly difficult ministry in Ephesus? Yes, facing beasts, wild beasts in Ephesus, right? And so there's a door open, but there's opposition. These three guys come and they refresh Paul's soul. He says the same thing to Philemon, and he will say the same thing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7.13 regarding Titus. Titus came and refreshed your hearts. Have you ever actually, you know, maybe just having a tough time and feel the weight of trials or encroaching, sadness or whatever the case may be and and God brings a brother or a sister across your path and they just refresh you. You were depleted and deflated and God uses that person or persons to come and and just to refresh your heart. That's, that's what the body of Christ is about. And, and, you know, that refreshing doesn't take place unless we're open to it, willing to give it and receive it. This is why so many Christians actually just wither on the vine because they isolate themselves. They never get to know anybody. They have their, you know, they have their cocoon up and, and, and they're missing out actually on being able to be refreshed by brothers or sisters and in turn to be refreshing to others. And so Paul, and I think when he says to the Corinthians and they refreshed you as well, I think Paul in a sense is speaking as he's writing the letter, he puts it in the past tense, looking at it from the perspective of these three men having arrived back to Corinth and deliver the letter and encouraging them with news from Paul on the home front, in a sense. Okay. And so here's this wonderful sense where Paul says, these three men, they came and they, they refreshed my spirit, they refreshed your spirit. Uh, another way to translate that word refresh would just be like to revive And then Paul says, acknowledge such men. In other words, give give them the recognition. So there's not only the sense of being subjection to them. This isn't just some sort of, you know, raw, um, um, you know, in a sense, bow to uh, the authority. This is a sense of recognize the leadership, but, but recognize the men, acknowledge the men, and in the midst of a church that was that was racked by division, remember 1, 10 to 12, I hear that divisions exist among you, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, etc. Paul says, listen, these guys are laboring, and they're laboring for your good, just recognize them, right? Recognize them. Then we get to the greetings, and of course, this is This is common in Paul's epistles. We're kind of 
getting down, ready to, to land the plane here. The churches of Asia, this is Roman, the Roman province of Asia, not what we know as Asia today. The churches of Asia greet you, right? And so uh, it's, it's hard to tell, right, how long it would take Paul to write 1 Corinthians, right? I don't think he just sat down and just like, you know, ripped it out in, you know, 25 minutes or something. It could have been a multi-week project, right? And so as Paul has visitors, different people from different churches in Asia, hey, what are you doing, Paul? I'm writing to the Corinthians. Hey, tell them, tell them that we send our greetings to you. And um, one of the things that I really love, I wish we did it uh, more and we, we should, and that is whenever I go and preach in a different congregation, you know what I always say? I always say, the people from Minden, Nevada, give you greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And in fact, every, every once in a while when we have a guest speaker that comes, I'll, you know, I bring you greetings from, you know, wherever. And, uh, and it was just, it's just a wonderful practice, right? And so here are the churches of Asia greet you, and then Aquila and Prisca or Priscilla greet you, right? So these are Paul's co-laborers whom he meets in Corinth, And in fact, Paul meets them in Corinth because they'd been booted out of Rome because of the uh, decree, actually, that expelled all the Jews um, uh, by Claudius in, in AD 49. And so Paul meets them. He's got something in common with them. You remember what it was? They made tents, right? So they were, um, they probably worked for Cabela's and they made really fine tents. And so Paul meets them because of a common bond and ends up recognizing in them, by the way, he will describe them in Romans 16 as those who have risked their neck for me on many occasions. Just, you can't beat Priscilla and Aquila. They give you a hearty greeting, right? Then the church in their house, all of them say hi to, and then all the brethren greet you, so all of Paul's co-workers. And then he says, then he says this, greet each other with a holy kiss. Now, <clears throat> this probably does deserve a little explanation. Because if the elders see you walking around kissing everybody, we're going to have to have a little conversation, right? (laughs) So you do know that a kiss, typically one on each cheek, was a common Mediterranean way to greet each other, all right? Now, it does raise the question for us, how do you interpret the Bible? You ever run into anybody that just says, you just interpret it literally, and normally they don't know exactly what they mean by that. Well, interpret it literally would mean I'd have to go around and and you've kissed me before, but that's, you know. <laughs> the 
easy answer is it's the opposite of an unholy kiss. Okay? So the kiss, obviously the holy kiss, was the kiss that Christians would share, and it was an appropriate display of affection. All right? That's the idea. It was an appropriate display of affection. It was an affectionate greeting, all right? Um, Obviously, Paul had not heard about social distancing yet, and so, um, but here's the thing, is that um, this really is something that is, in a sense, determined by culture. An affectionate greeting has different cultural manifestations, okay? Um, And you could go in, in different places in the world and see uh, the, the whole spectrum of, of, of different levels of affection in greetings, all right? And um, for Paul, it was a holy kiss. You know, for us, that's really not so much the way that we greet each other, okay? Now, when I get home, I'll give Ariel a holy kiss, all right? I'll put 1 Corinthians 16 into practice. But with you... I will give you a holy hug. All right? (laughs) Yeah, Wilbur's excited about that. Um, Sometimes a good firm handshake. But Paul's point is actually just clear, and that is greet one another with affection. Do you know why? Because we're the family of God, right? We're actually, we're actually bound together by the blood of Christ and by the Holy Spirit, and we are, we are united in his blood, right? And so we belong to the family of God. When I was a new Christian, um, the, uh, the church that we went to, we used to sing, we used to, uh, especially after a, a, a communion service, we would sing this little song, some of you know it, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, been born of his spirit, washed in his blood, joined heirs with Jesus as we travel this sought. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, right? And that's, that's the idea is that Christians are, th- th- this is more, th- this is more than just um, some sort of um, common bond that we may share in terms of, of, of politics or some sort of common bond that we may share in terms of, of morality or ethics or, uh, or philosophy or perspective. This is actually a, 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 a union and a communion that we share with each other because we are one in Christ Jesus. Some of you aren't huggers. That's fine. Don't want to force you. Some of you, I don't know if anybody actually remembers. Don might remember. Years and years ago, we had this wonderful lady in our church. She's since gone to heaven. Her name was Dottie Sanix. And she was a big hugger. And we had another guy in our church who was Lithuanian, and he was not a hugger. And so the battle between the hugger and the non-hugger began. And guess who won? The hugger. The hugger always wins. All right, I'm just telling you, the hugger always wins. And so then at that point in the writing of the letter, Paul does something that is his custom. Notice, he says, verse 21, the greeting is in my own hand. And notice, 
I don't know how the ESV does it, but the NAS has a dash and then Paul. And so what's going on is Paul's dictating the letter. And at that point, what he does is he actually takes the pen and then writes the remainder of this letter in his own hand, signs his name to it, all right? And so we have Paul's very personal greeting. That brings us then to 22 to 24, the imprecation and the benediction. And so verse 22, and there's good reason to think that that Paul actually um, finishes this letter in his own hand um, with, with probably larger letters than what the manuscript had up to this point. Okay. How do we know that? What's that? Yeah, he had bad eyesight, for, you know, uh, but this is, this is what he does in Galatians. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. See with what large letters I write, which is my custom. Okay. So in all likelihood, this part of the, of the manuscript ends up having larger letters because the apostle is writing this part. And notice the very first thing that he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he's to be accursed. And so here's Paul, and, and he, he writes, by the way, he's to be accursed, is the term anathema. If anyone is not loving the Lord Jesus, he's to be anathema. Now, by the way, this, this, this will maybe surprise some of you. What, what word, Greek word, do you think would be used here for love the Lord Jesus? You know the, the the Greek the Greek words for love, right? Okay. Yeah, so I think most people I won't take a poll, but most people would say, well, this is agapao or or the noun form agape, right? You know, agape love. And it's actually phileo, which is the idea of fond affection. By the way, there's very good reason to think that there's tremendous overlap in the words for love, especially agapao and phileo. Okay? Um, you can't make too big of a deal about the difference. And so here's Paul, and he says, if anyone doesn't actually have a fond affection for the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. And, and, and you think, wow, anathema. Paul, that seems so strong, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't you have just felt better if Paul would have said, if anyone doesn't love the Lord Jesus, pray for him, right? That, that would have been the nice thing to say. And instead, Paul says, if anyone doesn't love the Lord Jesus, let him be anathema. By the way, this is not the first time that Paul's ever pronounced an anathema. You remember back in Galatians chapter 1, if anyone comes to you preaching to you any other gospel other than the one which I preach to you, let him be anathema. And again I say, that's verse 8, again I say, verse 9, if we or an angel from heaven were to preach to you any other gospel other than the one that you received, let him be anathema. And so this word anathema, by the way, you can't get a stronger word. You just can't. Because the word anathema is, 
is the, the Greek form of, of the Hebrew idea of to be under the ban, which was the idea of being devoted to destruction. In the Old Testament, that which was under the ban, it was not lawful for the people of God to take. You do remember Old Testament passages about this, right? Joshua, right? The whole story of Achan, right? So everything belonging to those in Jericho was to be under the ban, devoted to destruction. And instead, Achan actually took some for himself, and then it led to what? He and his family being devoted to destruction. You you can't get a stronger word, because to say accursed is just another way of of saying... um, Devoted to judgment. Devoted to destruction. And so, why in the world would Paul begin to close out this letter, especially in his own hand, and say, if anybody does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be devoted to destruction. And why why actually make that the standard? Because love to Christ is the... Christian standard that manifests itself in obedience. If you love me, you keep my commandments. And so the apostle identifies, as it were, the ultimate language of Christian obedience. And, and as he says this, it's, it's very possible, there's no way to know for, for sure, but it's very possible that he's encompassing the, the doctrine and the ethics of the whole letter, right? So if, if, if anyone is, doesn't love the Lord Jesus, which is, in a sense, another way of saying, if anyone is not in submission to obedience to Christ, believing in Christ, walking with Christ, let him be anathema. Now, Paul's not talking here about um, unbelievers who are out in the world. He's talking about people within the assembly. Do you think, after having gone through this for a while now, that there were any Corinthians that were in the Corinthian assembly who actually didn't love Christ because they weren't saved. Absolutely. You have to understand this. There is no such thing in this world as an absolutely pure Christian assembly. In other words, there will always be unbelievers mixed in to the assembly of God's people. 
It's a sobering thought. Because part of us would just like to just just be absolutely charitable and just assume that, that everybody that's here is here because they know Christ. And that's not always the case. It's not always the case. And Paul's solution, as it were, um, Paul's prayer wish is, is actually, if they don't love Christ, anathema. It's harsh. It's harsh. And yet it's inspired. Could it be that as Paul thinks about these churches, especially the ones that he planted, he knows the gospel that was preached, he knows the word that was preached, he knows the power of the Spirit as it, as it worked in those assemblies. Could it be that the very idea of of joining yourself just visibly, attaching yourself just visibly to the people of God for whatever motivation and yet not really having a heart for Christ was so repugnant to the Apostle Paul that that you would dare to actually join. You remember going back to uh, the book of Acts in Acts chapter 5 after God had killed Ananias and Sapphira, the people held them in awe right, the church, but nobody was joining. Right? Why join that church? Those people drop dead. You know, God is, is, is winnowing the church even in these days. Even in these days. This this whole situation that we find ourselves in has been a winnowing of the church. To some degree, a separation of the wheat from the chaff. I saw an article this week. Actually, I've seen it pop up a number of times where these um, church experts predict that by the time the whole COVID thing is done, one out of five churches in the United States won't even survive. I think that's probably... Possibly true, right? And so what you're seeing then is uh, a push. In fact, I have it on my phone. I should have brought it. I actually screenshot it because I was so appalled. How to grow your church online. Serious. So let me just say, for the hundredth time, online church is not church. For church to be church, you have to be physically present. Okay. Okay. By the way, I know 
We get lots of people that watch and listen on sermon audio. Thankful for all of that. Listen, you can, you can hear a sermon on the internet, but you don't experience preaching. And there's a difference. And so, as people become more and more comfortable doing what? Feeding their own sense of isolation, right? Feeding their own sense of of me, myself, and I, it becomes increasingly more comfortable for them to say, you know what, I've kind of grown accustomed to staying in my jammies on a Sunday morning and just flipping on the computer and then, uh, and then turning it off when it's all over and I, I don't have to go and actually talk to anybody or anything else. And you know what? Not, not, to be, not to be overly harsh, but I think Paul would say, if anybody does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be anathema. Love to Christ manifests itself in obedience to Christ, and obedience to Christ manifests itself in our love for each other. So, these are challenging times, and it may very well be that what God is doing is He is going through a separation process. You know how Paul concludes the book of Ephesians? Grace be upon those who love the Lord Jesus with an incorruptible love. Paul goes from anathema then to maranatha. (laughs) It is sort of a cool sounding play on words, right? Anathema, maranatha. And of course, maranatha ends up being Aramaic, for it's it's marana tha tha being the Aramaic term for God. By the way, in 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 Jewish literature and the Aramaic targums and the Aramaic translation of Hebrew, tha is only used for God. It's a title that's only used for God, and yet the apostle says Maranatha, Marana tha, which means Lord, come. The same way John concludes the apocalypse. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, Revelation twenty two twenty. And so, some people want to try to connect this um, with with anathema. Uh, so, in other words, uh, anathema, uh, maranatha. So, Lord, come in judgment, or Lord, come bear witness against those who don't love you, or something like that. I actually don't think that that's that's compelling at all. It seems to be. Uh, what we could call just simply an eschatological prayer. To say Maranatha is actually just crying out that, that Christ would return. Lord, come. By the way, this is not only the way that, and John doesn't use this particular word, but in the Didache, which is a one of the earliest uh, post-apostolic documents dating 100 to 110 A.D. There's a section uh, on thankfulness, and let me just read it to you. Come, grace, 
and let this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If anyone is holy, let him come. If anyone is not, he must repent. Maranatha, amen. And so Paul concludes by saying, if anyone doesn't love the Lord Jesus, anathema. And then he prays, as it were, Lord, come. Aren't there days when your heart beats more heavily with that prayer? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Some people say, well, why, why is God letting all this stuff happen in the world and it's so awful? And um, I think sometimes God just simply lets really terrible things happen so that Christians don't have their hearts so set on this world that they can't pray Maranatha. Wouldn't it be the best day of your life if Jesus came back tonight? For some of you, though, that would be the worst day of your life. Because you'd stand before the judge of all the earth. His people would be rejoicing. You'd be terrified. And so... Paul then wraps up this really beautiful, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Okay. So just so you know that Paul's not like a, a, just like a consistent sourpuss. The grace of the Lord be, be with you. And then, and then he says in the most tenderest terms, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so just, by the way, just remember that the, the guy who just said, if anyone does not the, love the Lord Jesus, anathema, is also the one who just says, may my love be with you in Christ Jesus, all right? And so Paul knew how to be both tough and tender, all right? But here's Paul as he wraps this up, and it is the grace of Christ and the love of the brethren in Christ. Do you know these last two verses, do you know what they do? These last two verses demonstrate, as it were, the very blessing of the the common life of the people of God. What is... What is, what is church life all about? Well, church life is not about competition or rivalry or, uh, in, in fact, the Christian life is, is, is as much as, as, as service is a part of it. It's not ultimately even just about us serving. It is about the grace of the Lord Jesus being with all of us. And actually taking in the, the very means of grace that, that God uses to communicate the grace of the Lord Jesus to be with all of us. And then the other part of, of church life, community life, the life of faith is the love of the brethren. May my love be with you in the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of Christ, the love of Christ, love for each other. That, those are the very blessings of common life together in Jesus Christ. You know what happens is we, we really rob ourselves, don't we? We rob ourselves in profound ways. 
when we don't put ourselves in the very place to receive the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we don't put ourselves in the place of being able to extend or receive love, which is in Christ Jesus. We rob ourselves. And so the blessing of of our life together is, hey, guess what? We all need grace. Not a single one of us that has our act together. You need grace, right? If you're a dad, you need grace. If you're a husband, you need grace. If you're a mom, you need grace. If you're a wife, depending on who you're married to, you might need a double portion of grace, all right? If you're a kid, you need grace. You need grace no matter who you are. And, and, and in a sense, gathering together as the people of God is the place of grace. I hear about Christ. I see Christ as he's preached to me. I see Christ in my brothers and sisters, and it gives me opportunity to love each other, love one another. And so here we come to the end of this absolutely magnificent book. And let me just say, so Paul ends with the supremacy of love, right? Do everything in love. Generosity to those who are in need, giving. Hospitality to the saints. Strong Christian life and witness. Affection for the brethren. And grace and love to the church. And a prayer that Jesus would return very soon. And that's the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, it's been a huge blessing to me to be able to study it and teach it for the last number of years. And I hope it's been a blessing to you. I hope that uh, just like um, Dawn's kiss of me is a fond memory, I hope that all of these expositions of 1 Corinthians will be a fond memory for you and you'll visit them frequently. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this book. And Father, we pray that that not only would you just teach us, but we pray that you'd transform us. We pray that you would fill our hearts with, with the grace of the Lord Jesus and with love for one another. And Father, we pray that during these difficult times, this time where, Lord, it seems as if there's um, so much going on in the world, Lord, keep us mindful that there's a lot going on in the church. Help us to love each other, to reach out to each other, pray for each other. Hold each other up. And Father, we pray that you would so bless your people that we would get to heaven together safely for the glory of the one who's bought us with his own blood. In Christ's name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.